Let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy, chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So in typical fashion, Paul began this letter by identifying himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. A reminder that, frankly, Timothy probably wouldn't have needed by this time. But this is an indication that Paul knew that he was writing first to Timothy as an individual, then perhaps to the church at Ephesus, but ultimately to a much wider audience. And that wider audience concerns both you and me. In the first letter to Timothy, Paul said that his apostleship was by the command of God. That was in the first verse of First Timothy. Here he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Slightly different phrases, but essentially synonymous concepts. The bottom line is, Paul didn't run for the office. He didn't candidate for the office. God appointed him to that office. And this is the way that it should be. We should not, we should not aspire to some sort of spiritual gift that God didn't place upon us. It's going to do nothing but get you in trouble. Whatever it was that God gifted you to do, that's by the will of God and by the power of God. You should appreciate it by the grace of God. And, and with the strength that God will infuse in you, you should serve Him with all your might. But Paul is an apostle, not because of his own doing, but because... God appointed him that according to his own will, and according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. This is a rather troublesome phrase in, in that it could be taken a few different ways, but the promise of life in Christ, essentially the gospel, was the reason for and the yardstick of Paul's apostleship. So he starts off by saying, from Paul. Now, now, some business letters do that today. We've studied this so many times, I don't think we probably have to dwell on it very much. But a letter in the ancient world started off as like this, from Paul to Timothy. Today we would say, dear Bob, and at the end of it you'd say, sincerely, John. But then this, this was a very common way that letters were written, and Paul's following the common pattern of his day. So he introduces the individual to whom this is written. But again, this is written to Timothy, but to the church at Ephesus as well, and to the church at large that will follow them from now to the time that Christ comes again. We, we, don't, we don't want to get into this silly notion that, that, that we do sometimes by, I would call it, hyper-analyzing the text. I'm not talking about doing exegesis on the text or to properly observe things in the text and interpret them. I'm talking about hyper-analyzing it. Some people say, well, that, you know, he only gave that command to the apostles. No, if it's here, that's, that's going to be a very rare occurrence where the command is only given to the one person to whom it's addressed. And here, if this was only addressed to Timothy and it didn't have anything to do with you or me or the rest of the church, it wouldn't be canonical. There'd be no reason to save it. So the rest of us can listen in on this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, and we can learn a lot from it. And believe me, you will. This is, this is probably... One of the richest letters that Paul writes. And that's saying a lot because he writes a lot of theology. But these are his final words, and final words are very special. But more on that in just a minute. To Timothy, my dear son. This does not mean Timothy was Paul's physical offspring, but he was his spiritual offspring. And this again emphasizes this close paternal or a fatherly relationship that Paul has with this younger pastor. Timothy is younger than Paul. We don't know how much younger. But, but probably younger by a couple of decades uh, at least. It's also very probable, although we can't say with 100% certainty, that I don't know that the text will 
let us do that. But it's, it's highly, highly probable that Paul's the one that gave Timothy the gospel the first time. But if he didn't do it, then his grandmother or, or mother probably did it, and they'll be mentioned here in just in short order. And then finally, the phrase, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord is identical to the salutation Paul had in 1 Timothy. So again, I'm not going to dwell a lot on that here. Here, the same things we said in 1 Timothy, we should say here as well. But here, as an introduction, we have the final letter of the Apostle Paul. Oftentimes, when, when we approach the end of this journey that we have here on earth, perspectives change. And things that were important to us yesterday are not so important to us today. Um, One thing I really appreciate about the Apostle Paul is that he is consistent all the way. He finishes well. Although there's a sense of urgency in his voice, he's not in a panic. And his priorities, his priorities when he writes 2 Timothy, are the same as they've been throughout his entire ministry. He doesn't panic at the end. He doesn't all of a sudden become spiritual at the end because he knows now I better get myself straight because the time is short. Now, you remember, remember Solomon's message at the end of Ecclesiastes? It's a rather perplexing book, isn't it? But you remember after all the things that he tells us. And Solomon was a person that had just about everything. If you wanted money, you think money's going to make you happy? Solomon had it and he tells you it's not going to do it. If, if money's not your thing, probably the second most common thing, you think, some, you think a woman's going to make you happy or a man's going to make you happy, if, if, depending on which, um, where you are in that thing. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we've got it all balanced out properly. But, but Solomon had about a thousand of the opposite sex, and he says, no, no, that's not going to make you happy. At least, at least the abuse of God's wonderful plan is not going to make you happy. You think being smart's going to make you happy? Solomon was the wisest guy of his, of his uh, age. And that's what that didn't make me happy. Being well-read. Most of us, a lot of us anyway, perhaps not most, but most of us would love to have a vacation where we got two weeks where we got did nothing but read. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That To me, that's the ideal vacation. Not, not any kind of uh, physical activity, to be sure. I would, I would much prefer to sit and read. Cindy would like to take the walks, but we have to, we have to balance that out. Solomon says, that's not going to make you happy either. Remember what he said? Remember your Creator in the days of thy youth. Don't wait till you're older. Don't wait till you're on death's door. To say, you know what, now I'm going to start serving God. Now I think I'll start praying. Now maybe I'll start giving. Now maybe I'll start thinking of heavenly things on a more consistent basis. No, do it Do it right now. However old you are, whatever your age is right now, this is the age you need to start if you haven't already done that. And hopefully you have. But Paul was not one of those kind of people who waited to the end. He was the same in the beginning of his ministry, at the end of his ministry. I'm sure he matured, but his goal, his focus was always the same. I really appreciate that about the Apostle Paul. So these are his final words, and they're, they're important to us, but the perspective is the same as he's always had. He, just, he tells Timothy with a certain sense of urgency, not panic, but urgency, not for himself, but for Timothy. And we'll see that, and for us as well. We'll see that as we go through, as we go through this epistle. What Paul then is about to communicate to Timothy is, in effect, his final words. But not only to Timothy, but to all of us down through the centuries. To remind you, First and Second Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral epistles. We've studied them in the order in which they're believed to have been written. We've studied First Timothy, then we studied Titus, and now we're studying Second Timothy. 
And again, let me remind you that the name pastoral epistles didn't become popularized until the 1700s. And so it can be misleading. The term pastoral also meaning like a shepherding epistle. But it has to, people think that these are epistles that just concern pastors. So there's no need for me to study these if you're not a pastor. Well, that could, nothing could be further from the truth. This is the Word of God, and it is for you. These three letters do speak to pastoral duties. And I have to tell you just a, a little bit of, uh, on a personal note, when I've gone through a period of time where, I, where I've had my own struggles or where I have my own discouragements, the place that I turn first in the Scriptures is to the pastoral epistles. And I read through them because they give me my orders. And I remember for whom I work. And, and then the, the discouragement does seem to fade away. But they're not simply for pastors. They, are, uh, they, they deserve a much broader audience than that. We learn from these epistles how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And we saw that in 1 Timothy, didn't we? Remember, 1 Timothy talks some about leadership and then some about the life within the church. And then the Titus and 2 Timothy unpack some of those in a more specific way. Therefore, the pastorals apply to all of us, not simply those in pastoral ministry. And I hope that this, I trust this has been made clear over the last several months as we've studied these. A little bit of background information, though, to help you understand the letter. Remember, Paul was imprisoned in Rome on two different occasions. During the first imprisonment, which we understand to be between 60 and 62 A.D. In the past, we've reminded you that Paul is probably around the same age that our Lord was, which would put him about 60 to 62 when he's imprisoned. Now, there, it could be plus or minus, but give or take, that's a, if, you're, if you're curious about things like those, that's what Paul's age would be at this particular time. During his first imprisonment, and it is really crucial for the understanding of these pastorals, it's crucial for you to understand the distinction between his first imprisonment and the second Roman imprisonment. In the first imprisonment, remember he's imprisoned after going to Jerusalem, he's under house arrest there. And he's got quite a bit of freedom. Not freedom to come and go, but people can come and go. And there, he is under guard, but not under a tremendous amount of guard, perhaps one guard at a time. Um, and um, while he's in prison the first time in Rome, he writes four letters. They're called the prison epistles. Not to confuse you, there's pastoral in prison, a lot of P's here tonight, but the prison epistles are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and its little sister letter, the letter to Philemon. So Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So he writes four letters during his first imprisonment. During his second imprisonment, he'll write three letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Although the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison, we know historically that he was released from prison that time. And during the years that followed, he continued his ministry. Being in prison didn't stop him. If they thought that's what was going to do it, it didn't. Just because he had been placed into prison one time didn't scare him from going forward with his ministry after he gets out. You remember he, when we studied Romans, he, he wanted to go to Spain. Whether he ever went to Spain or not, we just simply don't know. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say that several times tonight. We just don't know. I'll tell you what we do and what we don't. We don't know that. I suspect that he didn't, but, but that's just totally a suspicion. There's no evidence of that at all. But I, I know he hoped to. But he did write to Timothy in Ephesus and then to Titus in Crete during this period. So if you kind of put this in, in line, 60 to 62, he's in prison in Rome during this first imprisonment, which we call more of a house arrest. 
He couldn't go, but other people could come and go. So he writes four, four letters. He's released. This is where the book of Acts ends. The book of Acts ends with him there. But we know that he was released. And so there's a period of time from 62 to, let's say, probably early 68, a period of six years, where Paul is, is not in prison, and he travels. His itinerary there is difficult to reconstruct with certainty, but he probably goes to Ephesus, he probably goes to Crete, up through Troas, and he writes at least these two books, or at least two letters. He writes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, in Ephesus. And remember, we just got through studying Titus. He writes Titus, 2 Titus, in Crete. It's at some point after this. It's at some point after he writes Titus. And we understand he probably writes Titus in around 64, somewhere in that range. So sometime after 64, after the writing of Titus, Paul is arrested for the second time and taken back to Rome. And it's very likely that Paul's arrest was in some way connected with Nero's burning of Rome in 64. It's very, very likely that Paul's arrest probably after 64, at least after the summer of 64, when Nero burns Rome, and I'll explain that in a minute, Paul is arrested for the second time. He's taken to Rome, and, and this after this one, he won't get out. After this one, he'll be executed or uh, as part of this whole imprisonment. This brings up a character by the name of Nero. Now, this is a Bible study tonight. I understand that totally. And some of the things that I'm about to tell you about this man, Nero, are quite troubling. In fact, if you're listening to this on a tape and you don't want to hear any troubling things right now, it would be good just to turn this one off and go to the next one. Those of you that are here, though, it's too late for you. <laughs> because in order, to, in order for you to really understand Second Timothy, we're going to have to challenge your sensibilities tonight. The name Nero personifies just about everything that is evil. This perverse and violent man was the adopted son of the Emperor Claudius. While he was still in his teens, Nero succeeded Claudius as Emperor of Rome, and it's generally believed that Nero's mother, Agrippina, poisoned Claudius so that her son could take over the throne. He takes over the, it's not so much the throne, they wouldn't have used that term, I, I misspeak there, but, but to take over the, the position of emperor. He's about 17 when that happens. It's generally understood that during the, the very first few years of Nero's reign, that he, can I use the word, relatively decent person? Certainly relative compared to what he became later, uh, and relative compared to, to say, the, some of the perversity that will come later. So he arrives to the throne in the first place by virtue of the fact that his mother poisoned the emperor, the emperor Claudius. To return the favor... Nero later had Agrippina murdered. He was afraid of his mother. And he knew that his mother had aspirations perhaps to take him out of the situation and put somebody else on the throne. He also wanted to marry a girl at the time, and his mother wouldn't let him. She was a bit overbearing. Perhaps not the right answer to have her killed or to kill her, but this is the kind of person that Nero was. He was afraid of his mother, but he knew he couldn't kill her with poison because Agrippina was smart. And she knew all about all the poisons of the ancient world that were typically used. 
And because she was smart and knew all the symptoms of the poisonings, she would ordinarily carry around the anecdotes with her for any particular poison. So he knows if he's going to get rid of mom, he can't do it in the normal, ordinary way. He counsels with some of his friends, and some of those that were close to him, well, how can I get rid of her? I can't really just have her assassinated, as was the Roman way, because he wasn't, he wasn't in that good of stead with the Roman people that they would have put up with the emperor assassinating his mother. He didn't have quite a, that amount of, of, of power. So at the advice of one of his friends, Nero invites his mother to what amounts to a party. Nero's mom, again, is smart. She gets wind of this conspiracy that, that might have been brewing to have her killed. She doesn't want to go, but she goes anyway to the party. At the party, Nero does everything to show the entire world that is watching that he loves his mom. Great shows of public affection and, and uh, how much he loves her. And so everybody sees how much he loves his mom, not understanding that the whole time he's got this plot in his mind that has already been hatched, it has already been set into motion to kill his mom that night. The way he's going to kill her is he's going to invite her out on a boat ride, although he himself is not going to go. He will retire back before the time comes to leave on the ride. The boat has been sabotaged. The boat has been sabotaged to collapse once they get far enough out into the water where nobody can swim back. It's unclear from historical accounts whether or not Nero had intended to kill everybody else on the boat or not, or some of them were, were, were to be able to escape. But presumably, well, at least one other person died, and we presume that other people did well, as well. So the boat goes out into the harbor, gets far enough away from shore so that nobody would be able to swim back, and collapses on cue. Immediately, one of the beam fa beams fall over and hits one of her bodyguards and closest friends, uh, in the upper region up and through uh, neck and, and head, and he's immediately killed. Another beam falls over and actually hits her. She's wounded, but not mortally wounded. She goes into the water. It's too far for her to swim, so she either latches onto a piece of driftwood from the ship or a passing boat. It's a bit unclear from historical references. Gets back to shore. <laughs> Is immediately taken to her own home. While she's at her villa recuperating, she sends a message to Nero, her son, knowing right now that, that he is complicit in this somehow. The message that she sends to her son, Nero, is, I've been injured, but I'm, I'm okay, I made it, I know you're happy about that, but don't come see me. It's okay, you've got way too much to do. I don't want to trouble you. I'll just recuperate here in my villa alone. The message immediately gets to Nero back in Rome. He is enraged. He calls his advisor together again and said, what do we need to do now? Because we know she's going to rat this thing out. The normal way to have somebody assassinated would have been to send the Praetorian Guard down there to do it. They didn't dare do that because they knew the Praetorian Guard, as, as loyal as they were, wouldn't participate in that. So Nero got some of his thugs together. They secreted there by night. When they come into the home... One of them immediately, she immediately knows that she's a goner at that point when she sees these guys. One of them hits her, crushes her over the head. The other one is about to stab her. She says, no, please, if you're going to stab me, stab my womb. And as a symbolic gesture, this is what has come out of the womb, and I want it, you know, I want it ended. And so she dies. We can't have a lot of sympathy for a figure like Agrippina, although because she was complicit in other murders, this is the part I told you is going to offend your sensibilities, but you, you need to have at least, and I'm going to clean it up as much as I can, but you need to have some idea 
of the perversion of this man that arrests the Apostle Paul. Because it's going to make the fact that he doesn't whine about it all the more beautiful. But Agrippina, at one point, before, of course, before this, goes in front of the, uh, in front of Nero when he is in front of many, many senators and citizens of Rome and, uh, and has a, a, a sexual liaison with her son in, in front of the entire populace there. So Agrippina was pretty much of a, of a uh, perverse person herself. Following this murder, Nero becomes even more perverse, and many historical writers believe that he becomes insane at this point. On one occasion, and this is another one of those perversities, he forced the Roman Senate at knife point or sword point, if you will, to observe his wedding to a homosexual lover, and and they forced the Roman Senate to... Uh, observed the consummation of that marriage upon the stage. The Romans were not the most moral people. The Roman Senate was not full of the most moral of people. But there were limits. And this is where Nero finally crosses the line. And so the Senate is, is attempting to do what they can do to try to get rid of this monster of a person that they placed in charge of Rome. Nero, again, is becoming more insane and um, has these illusions of grandeur. And so before he goes, he wants to do everything that he can to leave himself a legacy, like, kind of like presidents do in their second term in, in our country. And he knows that in order to leave himself a legacy, he's going to have to leave architecture, because that's what lasts. So Nero wants to build these grand palaces, and in order to do it, there's got to be some land cleared. Rome was an incredibly large city. It was about a million people. That's a huge for the ancient world. Had a decent system of sewage and things like that, but also had a very large slum area. It was, Rome was divided up into 14 districts, and, and one of the districts, a few of the districts, were, were considered slums. So Nero goes and starts a fire, or has his people start a fire in the slum district in order to clear it out so that he can put the fire out, seem like a hero, and then he could rebuild these structures, save his legacy. Remember, he's insane by now, or at least very close to it. Problem is, they didn't have the firefighting equipment that we do today, and the fire spreads. And it engulfs three-quarters of the city by the time it's over with. And not only does it, does it wipe out the slums, but it wipes out many palaces of the wealthy people. It, it wipes out many of the architectural wonders of antiquity, and people are mad. Even from the beginning, so the historian Suetonus, Tacitus also tells us the same thing, but Suetonus tells us that people suspected Nero from the beginning. And he, remember, he is already in trouble by this, not just this perverse act, but other perverse acts as well. He was a rapist. He was a murderer. He would go out with his friends at night. This is the Roman emperor. He would go out with his friends at night in, in roving gangs, and he would just catch people on the street. They would beat them up steal their money, just just for grins. This is the kind of low life that Paul tells us to pray for in 1 Timothy. Does this give you a, a little insight into the character of the Apostle Paul? Most of us would pray that the Lord would take him out now, yesterday. I Okay, you might not. I would pray that he would have taken him out yesterday. You're pretty pious, but I mean, I would have done that. But Paul doesn't. He prays for this guy. So Nero's in a fix. The fire got way out of control. People are suspecting that he did it. So Nero's got to blame somebody. And the, the somebody that he chooses to blame 
are this new religious sect in Rome, uh, people who are followers of this person who's called in Latin writings and in Roman writings, Christus, who we know as Jesus Christ. The Christians were a fairly easy target back then because people didn't understand them at all. They were looking at Christianity through a Roman lens. They thought that the, the communion service was, uh, was cannibalism because they would say people were eating the body and the, drinking the blood of Christ. They had no understanding about that. They thought the Christian dinners that they had were, that are called love feasts were orgies. And so they were, they were easy to misunderstand, easy to hate. And then the thing that was most puzzling about these Christians, you see, Romans wouldn't have had any problem worshiping Jesus Christ. They would have had a problem, though, worshiping only Jesus Christ. That was the problem with them. And they couldn't figure out these people that would worship only Christ. So, and by the way, I'm going through 50 years of Roman history real, real quickly, but, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm summarizing. So Nero picks the Christians, and he blames them, and begins one of the greatest persecutions the world has ever known. We think we've been persecuted when we lose the remote. I mean, really, we do. We think we're persecuted when we've got to go to the doctor and we have different conditions. Uh, we've been through nothing compared to that. So five years, five years after the murder of his mother, he burns this area. And one ancient source says he, he stood on a tower and he watched the city burn and he sang music, sang a song about the destruction of Troy. There's a more popular myth that he fiddled while Rome burned. That's very unlikely, as the fiddle itself wasn't invented for centuries after that. He could, have, he could have played a stringed instrument, though. He thought he was very talented, although he wasn't. He could have played a stringed instrument. That's possible. But most likely, he sang a song about the destruction of Troy while Rome burned. After having blamed the Christians, he begins this persecution. And, and again, I, I've told you these things tonight about Nero. Not, not so much to shock your sensibilities. I'm sensitive to that. I know that your sensibilities are shocked every time you turn on the television. I know you can't hardly drive down the freeway and look up at a billboard without your sensibilities being insulted. But I tell you these things so that you'll see the circumstances under which Paul is arrested and imprisoned. The Neronian persecution of Christians begins almost immediately after the fire. And one historian puts it this way. He says, Nero performed the worst atrocities upon his victims. Listen to this. He did not just kill Christians. He wanted to make them suffer at first. Nero enjoyed dipping Christians in wax and impaling them on poles around his palace. He would then light them on fire and yell, Now you are truly the light of the world. Nero also performed many other kinds of torture, often killing them in the Circus Maximus in front of large crowds of spectators where he did some of the most gruesome murders. Here he would wrap Christians up in animal skins, and throw them to lions or dogs, who would then tear these men and women apart in front of thousands of entertained spectators. At other times, he would crucify them, and after the crowd would get bored, he would set the Christians on fire. End quote. I've been to the Circus Maximus. I went there quite by accident. It looks like a large football field, but perhaps twice the size of a football field, twice the length. And when Paul was executed himself, this was the place that Christians were thrown to the lions. We, we think of the Colosseum, but it wasn't built at the time that the Apostle Paul was alive. It was built later on. So, it is in this environment that the Apostle Paul 
was arrested. We don't know the particular circumstances of his arrest, but we do know his second imprisonment in Rome was much more severe than the first. Sources that go back to medieval times report that Paul was held in a place called the Mamertine Dungeon in Rome. I've been to the Mamertine Dungeon. It's also reported from medieval times that Peter was held in the same place. We don't know if they were there at the same time, but it is understood that Peter and Paul were both arrested as part of this imprisonment and were both executed. I'll have more to say about that imprisonment as we continue the exposition of the letter, but one thing I would tell you is that if you're standing in front of the Mamertine Dungeon in Rome, if you're, if you're facing the building kind of an oblique way and you look out to your left, no more than 100 yards to your left is where, the, where Julius Caesar was assassinated and where the Roman Forum, the Roman Senate met. But probably no more than, a, than a three-quarters of a mile, maybe half a mile across the hill from where the, where the Mamertine Dungeon is, is the Circus Maximus. The reason I tell you that is as Paul was in prison for this last year or so of his life, or last several months at least, it would have been unthinkable that he could not have heard the roar of the crowd as his fellow believers and brothers and sisters in Christ that were being executed. This is a very passionate letter. This is a very personal letter written under very difficult circumstances for the Apostle Paul. But he finishes well. He finishes well. He doesn't quit. He doesn't start whining that he's in a bad circumstance. He finishes the course that was set for him by his Savior. Paul probably wrote 2 Timothy in the fall of 67. There are two reasons for this understanding this to be the date. According to early church tradition, Paul suffered execution shortly before Nero himself committed suicide. Nero committed suicide as, as best as historians can date it in June of 68. So Paul is executed in the months that lead up to that. So either in the fall of 67 or perhaps the winter spring of 68, Paul is executed. As we'll see when we get toward the end of the letter, I'll talk about it a lot more. Paul is beheaded. At least it's understood that he was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. Peter was not a Roman citizen, so if he did suffer execution around that same time, and it's understood that he did, he would have been executed by crucifixion. A tradition says that Peter was executed by being crucified upside down. That, that really smacks of legend. I don't know that, that we could in any way validate that, but because the Romans weren't, weren't the kind of people that would, would acquiesce to your request at how you would like to be executed. At any rate, this is the circumstance that we find Paul in. When he writes to Timothy, who as far as we know uh, is still in Ephesus, it's been about three years from the time of the first one to the second letter. And he writes to Timothy the first time explaining that the local church is a supporting pedestal for God's truth. Remember that from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. He said that the purpose of the local church is to proclaim God's truth in the world, And he also said that the purpose of the church leaders in the church is to expand God's truth or to do exposition of God's truth in the church. The purpose of the church was to proclaim God's truth to the world. The purpose of leadership is to proclaim God's truth in the church. As we've seen tonight, conditions facing the church had worsened considerably since Paul had written 1 Timothy. Characteristics of the last days were becoming increasingly obvious godlessness, and if I could use the word worldliness, were invading the church. 
So you have horrible things going on outside the church, and you have a lack of integrity that's taking place inside the church. And people in those days were thinking perhaps the last days are upon us. Have you asked yourself recently? I have. You know, are, are we in the final times? Is, does it seem like the Lord is the Lord is return is drawing nigh? It could be. I'm not. I'm not about to set any kind of date or, or even give a guess. But you can certainly see things that that make the horizon look a little dim, a little dark for Christians. We might ask ourselves, well, how am I going to handle that? How am I going to handle it if they start taking away the rights of Christians? How am I going to handle it if they start doing in the United States like they do in other parts of the world and and pulling pastors out in front of their congregations and uh, and executing them? That happened to a friend of mine's friend in the uh, country of Colombia. It didn't happen that long ago in, in this country down there. It happened. This was not uh, the government. It was the it was the Colombian mafia. The drug cartels decide they wanted the church property. They go into a church in the middle of a church service. They walk up to the front. They have a piece of paper that's the deed to the church. They tell the pastor to sign that piece of paper, sign it over, and he says, well, "I can't sign that. That's this is the church property. This isn't your property." So my friend's friend was invited to step outside for just a moment. And so they marched him down the middle aisle, had him go out into the front of the, the little grassy area in front of the church. While everybody turned around and looked, he was asked to go to his knees, which he did, and they executed him in front of the congregation for not signing the paper. Immediately, word gets around to all the other churches in the area what was going on. They go to my friend's church and ask him to do the same thing. They put a gun to his head, and he signed the paper. Can't blame him for it. There's, there was nothing to be really gained at that point, no, no statement to be made. And he's in the United States now ministering to Spanish-speaking people in this country up on the um, northern part of the town. What are we going to do if that happens? Are we going to quit? Are we going to start whining that God doesn't love us anymore? That God has left us or that he's, perhaps he's forsaken us? Or are we going to take a look at this letter and see how Paul handles his final days? You're going to see that he doesn't quit. You're going to see that the more intense the persecution becomes, the more his intense the exhortation to Timothy to preach the word. If the church failed at this point, at this pressure cooker point, to fulfill its purpose, remember the church's purpose, according to 1 Timothy, was to proclaim God's truth to the world. The truth is going to stop going out. Paul was more concerned with this than he was with his own safety. The church would fail if its leaders failed to expound the truth of the word of God to the saints in the church. Consequently, Paul writes 1 Timothy to encourage Timothy to fulfill his responsibility as a leader in the church in spite of what's going on out there. You still have a responsibility in here. But there is a broader message of 2 Timothy, and that is this. Believers must persevere in faithfulness in the face of hardship. Just because things get tough out there doesn't mean we can get weak. Just because persecutions begin, and they may, doesn't mean we can shirk our responsibilities. I joked about it a minute ago, but, but really, we have not been persecuted in this country. For many of us, a bad day is not being able to find the remote, isn't it? For, for a lot of, and that's what aggravates a lot of us. Where is that remote? Not being able to find our car keys. 
These people were dipped in wax, impaled, and set on fire. Now that's persecution. What are we going to do if times get hard? Are we going to persevere in faithfulness? I pray that we will. What form should this perseverance take? Well, first, the priority of the local church must be, both now and in times of difficulty, even in times of persecution, the priority of the local church must be to preach the word. Those who shepherd the flock should never neglect the feeding of the flock. We must not pursue relevance at the expense of the truth. It's the truth of the word of God that makes us relevant no matter what our era. And not the silliness that is passed off as worship in too many churches today. It's the preaching of the word of God that is powerful. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Not some program, not some bowling alley, not some games that we play and pretend that we're being relevant. Os Guinness, in his book, Prophetic Untimeliness, writes this, Evangelicals were once known as the, quote, serious people, end quote. It's sad to note that today many evangelicals are the most superficial of religious believers, lightweight in thinking, gossamer thin in theology, and avid proponents, proponents of spirituality light in terms of preaching and responses to life. What started out as breathless and excited is ending as exhausted and out of breath. Second, the first thing that, that we must understand that this form of perseverance must take is we must preach the word, regardless of what's going on in the persecution and the culture. The word cannot be compromised. The second thing, and finally, I'll close with this. Our behavior as Christians should be consistent with what it is we say we believe. We must live consistently with what it is we say we believe. Charlie Peace was a small-time criminal in England in the 1800s. Charlie Peace started off as a burglar and then kind of advanced in his criminal career, ended up committing murder. He murdered a constable for which he was not convicted, never arrested. Then finally he was arrested, tried, and, and sentenced to death for murder that he probably didn't commit. It's kind of ironic. He admits after he's sentenced to death for this one murder that he has indeed murdered a constable. So he was rightly sentenced to die. On his way to the gallows, Charlie Peace apparently was a, an interesting fellow. But on his way to the gallows, there was a priest that was leading him there in the robes and the garments with his Bible open. And he was reading scripture as he went. Peace was falling, being chained to two guards. It's at this point that peace interrupts the priest and asks him, he says, Sir, Mr. Priest, do you believe what it is that you've just read? And the priest was somewhat startled and said, Well, sure, yes, I do. And peace says, No, no, do you really, do you really believe what it is that you're reading? And the priest said, Well, yes. And Peace responded with these famous words that are famous now. He said, well, I'll tell you what, Mr. Priest. If I believed one-tenth of what you say you believe about heaven and about hell, I would have crawled across England on my belly on ground glass, if necessary, to tell everybody I knew about what it is you say you believe. 
That's convicting. We say we believe a lot. But is it just a game for you? Or is it real? It's easy to play games when times are prosperous. But if times get difficult, it's inevitable that they're going to get more difficult than they are right now. Whether we're in the rapture generation or not, I don't know. But it is inevitable that things are going to get more difficult. Are we going to continue to preach the word in spite of persecution? And are we going to continue to live consistently with what it is we say we believe? That's the challenge of Second Timothy.